theyeshiva.net. Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik, who was the son of Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik, who was the oldest son of Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, Rabbi Chaim Brisker, who was the son of the base Halevi, Rabbi Yosheber, Soloveitchik, Rabbi Yosef Dov Halevi, the Rav of Slutsk and the Rav of Brisk and the author of Beis Halevi. So his great-grandson once related this story in Valozhin, in the famous Lithuanian yeshiva of Valozhin, which is often defined as the mother of all of the, all of the Lithuanian, all of the Litvish yeshivas, the Rosh Yeshiva of the yeshiva was the Nitziv. Nitziv is an acronym of Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin. Abeno Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, he was the Rosh Yeshiva of Valozhin. And his colleague was the Beis HaLevi, Rabbi Yosef Doiv Soloveitchik. Their styles of learning and teaching varied dramatically. And at some point, there was some dramatic contention in the yeshiva between students who wanted Rabbi Yosheber to have more of a leading role in the yeshiva and others who sided with the Nitziv, who was de facto the leader of the yeshiva. And it became... As these things can become, it became uh, very, very contentious. So they brought down three Rabbonim, three of the great Rabbonim of the time, for a Din to serve as arbitrators between the two sides and to create a peaceful agreement in Valozhin. So Rabbi Soloveitchik said, after a few days of observing and listening and scrutinizing and reviewing, the rabbis, before they gave out the Psak Din, so one of them gave the following introduction. He said as follows. When you're learning Sefer Bereshis, so for all speakers and for all teachers, from Bereshis till Vayeshev, from Bereshis, Noyach, Lech, Vayerich, Hayesorah, Todas, Vayetzev, Vayichlach, your job is more or less easy. There's always the hero and the villain. At least on the surface, at least the way the Chazal portray it on the surface, there's the hero and there's the villain. You have Kayin as the murderer, and you have Hevel as the victim. You have Chum as the immodest child, and you have Shem and Yafis are the heroes. You have Yitzchak, and you have Yishmael. You have Avram, before that you have Avram, and you have his father Terah. Then you'll have in the next generation, you have a Yaakov, and you have an Esau. It's very simple. It's pretty much black and white. Now you have to understand that Nitziv's name was Yehuda and uh, the Beis HaLevi's name was Yosef. <laughs> Yosef Doiv, Naftali Tzvi Yehuda. So he says in Yiddish, on one side you have a Yehuda and on the other side you have a Yosef. Who's right? Who's wrong? It's very ambiguous. It's very hard to know. They're both defined by Chazal as tzaddikim. Yosef is even called Yosef Atzadeh. 
They're defined as Shifte Yutke, the tribes of Hashem, as great, thank you, great spiritual giants. Huh? So the question is, how do you deal with such a story? It's not easy to pit one against the other and say this one is completely in the right and this one is completely in the wrong. It requires far more subtlety, far more sensitivity. The truth is, I should say, as we have discussed earlier weeks, even with the villains, it's not so simple. It requires a lot more subtlety and sensitivity. But certainly when it comes to Yehuda and Yosef, and thus this was their introduction to give the verdict about what to do with Valaj. Which really I think is an appropriate introduction to our discussion today to try to understand at least one perspective of how we can develop an approach to Parshas Vayeshev, Miketz, Vayigash and Vayechi, the second half of Sefer Bereshis, deals with the conflict between Yosef and his brothers. When you're reading Parshas Vayeshev at the surface, Yaakov loves Yosef more than all of his children. He makes for him a ksoinus pasim, a special colorful tunic. Yosef is a dreamer. He dreams of the sheaves in the field bowing down to his bundle of grain. He dreams of a sun and a moon and eleven stars prostrating themselves to him. His brothers loathe him. They hate him. They're jealous of him. But what happens after is beyond mind-staggering. And every re- they say no book you can read twice. You can't read a book twice because every time you read it, it's different. Lahavdal with Torah, it's infinitely different. Every year you read the story again and again, and it's like there's always something new that you didn't pick up on. But the drama, the mystery, the suspense, the sadness. When you read Parshas Vayeshev, it's hard not to shed a tear. When you're watching, when you're experiencing the story, Lubavitcher Rebbe once at a Shabbos Fabrengen said that when he was in Cheder, so Friday, as the Minig is, they would learn Parshas HaShavuah. He was a little boy in the Ukraine, a city called uh, Nikolaev. And uh, so he said in the Cheder, in the school there, there was a boy, they were learning Parshas Vayeshev on Friday. And the boy got very emotional. Yosef comes to the brothers, and they take it, by Yavshitu, they remove from him his beautiful coat, his beautiful tunic. And they throw him into a pit. So the boy started to cry. So his teacher said, Baruch, relax. There's going to be a happy ending. There's going to be a happy ending. Next year, they're learning again Parshas Vayeshi. And Yosef is approaching the brothers. So this boy stands up and gives a scream. He says, Yosef, Yosef, don't go. You saw what they did last year. I know your father sent you. The teacher says, shh. He continues the psukim. Yosef goes. They throw him into the pit. He says, Yosef, Yosef, now you deserve it. I told you not to go again. Why did you go again? It represents, though, the truth, the innocence of learning it as a fresh story and a fresh story every year, and one is always perturbed. What happened? How can brothers do this to their own brother? Jealousy 
There's people sitting here in the room that probably have, I don't know anybody sitting in this room, but there's probably somebody in the world who's jealous and jealous of their brother. Does everybody get along with their siblings? Unfortunately not. We all know that. Many of us know from our own lives that there may be sibling rivalry or sibling issues. But whoever thought of taking their sibling, taking their brother, throwing him into a pit, and then selling him into slavery? How can we even begin to relate to this? How do we understand it? How do we comprehend it? Now, I'm not sure the answer can ever be better than the question. I don't know. Sometimes the question remains a question even with all of the answers. But let's understand, is it really because Yaakov made a Ksoyinus Pasuk, because he made this colorful tunic for his child, this causes such wrath, such hatred, such behavior? It's because he's dreaming. I know many people who have dreams. Your brother would come to you and said he's dreaming that the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars prostrate themselves. What you tell you? What would you tell your brother? Keep on dreaming. People say it all the time. Keep on dreaming. I mean, if it makes you happy, you want I should make an appointment? I'll make an appointment by somebody, somebody who can interpret your dreams. Once heard from Eli Wiesel. He said that uh, Freud and Herzl lived at the same time. Freud is the father of psychoanalysis, and Herzl is the father of Zionism, of secular Zionism. They both lived in Vienna, more or less at the same time. He said it's a mazel that they didn't live in the same building. They lived very close to each other, they didn't live in the same building. Or actually they lived, I think, very close, I don't know if in the same building, but very close to each other. It's a mazel, they didn't see each other. Why? Because Herzl would have gone up to Freud and said, I have a dream. And Freud would have explained to him and psychoanalyzed the subconscious motives. So he's dreaming. But the dreams trigger them in a very profound way. What was it about these dreams? Now, when one really looks at the story of Yosef and his brothers, the world recently lost Yogi Berra. I don't know if you say Allah Shalom on him. But Yogi Berra used to say, it's not over till it's over. One of his brilliant, brilliant quips. His wife once said to him, she said, uh, not long ago, she said, I don't know where I should bury you after you die. What's the problem? You were, bor- you were uh, born, where was he born? You don't know. No Yogi Berra fans? You were born in Missouri, you live in New Jersey, but you play, you played for the New York Yankees, so where should I bury you? New York, New Jersey, or Missouri? So he said, surprise me. (laughs) It's an important lesson in life, but what I want to bring out is, sometimes it looks like a story is over, it's not over, it keeps on surprising us. You think... After 22 years of separation, Yosef is sold as a slave. He's accused of violating a woman falsely. He's thrown into a pit in prison in in Egypt. He becomes a prime minister of the country. I mean, it's a stunning turn of events. He's feeding the entire fertile crescent, the entire uh, civilized region over there in a time of famine, including his own family. And 22 years later... He will meet his father and his brothers 
and he will reveal himself to them, and all is well. When ends well, they relocate to Egypt. Yosef feeds them and nourishes them throughout his father's passing and afterwards, and that's how Parshish Vayichi ends. There is peace. There is reconciliation between Yosef and the brothers. It looks like it's all over. It's great. After Yaakov's death, they thought he's going to take revenge. They come to him. They beg him not to punish them. They'll become his slaves. And Yaakov, Yosef says the beautiful words, Hasachas Eleikim Ani. I'm not, I'm not a replacement of God. You perhaps tried to cause me pain. But Eleikim Chashava Letoiva the Rebbeinu Shaloylam was simply creating a whole plan where I had the opportunity and privilege to save you to save the Jewish family and the world from a devastating famine. It seems like it's over, and really, it's a tremendous closure to Sefer Bereshis. Because if you think about it, Sefer Bereshis, on one level, can be understood simply as a story of sibling rivalry. Almost in every parsha, what you're, develop, what you're seeing is siblings not having the ability to get along with each other. Already the first moments after creation, the first family, nothing happened yet. What's the first dramatic story? A brother kills his own brother. And in Parshish Noyach, one brother, Cham, is cursed versus the other brothers, Shem and Yefes, who are blessed. And then in continuation, Lech Lecha and Vayera, Yitzchak and Yishmael, they can't get along, and Yishmael is expelled from the home. And then in the next story, Yaakov and Esau, they also don't get along, and Yaakov runs away from Esau. And yet, after 20 years, they meet up, there's some level of peace, but they part ways. Esau goes to Seir, Yaakov goes back there to Israel. And then in Vayeshev, you're introduced to a new conflict, Yosef and the brothers. But look how each one ends. The first conflict between brothers ends in homicide and murder. The next one ends in a curse. The next one ends in expulsion. The next one ends in separation. Peace, but separation. But Yosef and his brothers ultimately, how does that end? It ends in forgiveness. It ends in peace and it ends in coexistence. They actually end up living together in Mitzrayim. So perhaps all of Bereshus is a reflection how humanity can evolve from a state in which the brother kills his brother to a point where brothers can actually really forgive each other and really embrace each other and really be together. It still didn't reach its crescendo. That only happens in Shmois because Yosef and his brothers live together in the same country, but Yosef is the prime minister and the brothers are shepherds in an isolated ghetto called, I don't know, a ghetto, but an isolated region called Goishen, or as they used to say, Geishen. In Parsha Shmois, we have something completely unique. Two brothers, not only living together, but also working together. Working together, Moshe and Aaron, as the people who will set the Jewish people free from bondage. This is the ultimate, where the brothers not only get along, where the brothers not only forgive each other, where the brothers truly are working together for one goal, even though Aaron is older and Moshe feels it's not going to be so simple. And Hashem says, you don't know your brother Aaron, Virach of Esamach, He'll rejoice with your position, and that becomes the preparation for Torah. So perhaps the Torah can't be given till siblings learn how to really get along. You can't jump to Yisrael until you don't go through Bereshus and Shemais. But now we see that as history progresses, Yogi Berra was right.
it's not over till it's over, because the conflict between Yosef and Yehuda resurfaces, and it resurfaces in very dramatic ways. It doesn't begin with Yosef and his brothers, it begins one stage earlier. It begins with Rachel and Leah. Yaakov loves Rachel. Yaakov, on the other hand, ultimately marries Leah before Rachel by mistake. He didn't know what happened to him. And the Torah clearly says, Vayehav gam es Rachel mi Leah. Gam means he loved also Rachel, but more than Leah. It's a very interesting pasuk. Uh, grammatically, there's a very big problem there. You could say, Vayehav es Rachel mi Leah. You could say, Vayehav gam es Rachel. You can't say, Vayehav gam es Rachel mi Leah. But that's exactly the point. The point is, the Radak points this out, he loved also Rachel, which means he loved Leah. You can't say, I love you too, if I don't love anybody else. So when we say Leah was unloved, it's not so simple. Leah was loved, but you couldn't compare it to the love to Rachel, which is why the Radak says she was hated, because when you love two people, but you love one more than the other, it seems to one that they are unliked, which is very true with children. You may love all of your children, but if you love one a little more than the other, the other one doesn't feel, I'm loved, but not so much. The other one feels, I am hated. Those of us who have experience, have experience in one way or another. So Rachel and Leah, Rachel of course is the mother of Yosef and Binyamin, and Leah is the mother of Reuben and Shimon and Levi and Yehuda, and Yisachar and Zvulun. And therefore, there is some tension there, some conflict. We see it throughout the Psukim in the story with the Dudayim, in the story with Reuven and Bilha. We see things going on. So that's where it begins, L'chaira, apparently. It continues down with the siblings. But then there is forgiveness, there is reconciliation. They cannot bear the fact that Yosef is dreaming of dominance. You will prostrate yourself to me. All of your sheaves bow down to me. All of the 11 stars, my 11 brothers, bow down to me. You're going to rule over us. You will be the king. You will dominate us. And they hate it even more. And they're envious of him even more. But in reality, they put him into a pit. They sell him into slavery. He's no king. He's a slave. He doesn't even own his own freedom. And this is slavery in Egypt then. Egypt was no democracy at the time. It's a pretty shady democracy today. Not much has changed, but a prisoner in Egypt, a slave in Egypt at the time, meant a slave for life. Even a slave in America meant a slave for life unless there were unique circumstances. I'm talking about before Lincoln. So, it seems like Yosef's dreams are completely obliterated. And then, as events develop, he becomes the king. He's the prime minister, and they're bowing down to him. And when the end of Bereshus, when that chapter concludes, Yosef is the king. He's right on the Parai. He rules, he rules Egypt. As the Mishnah, nobody can lift his hand or feet without you, Parai says, declares. And the brothers, of course, are completely dependent on Yosef for food, for protection, for nurture. So what happens now is, Yosef is indeed the leader. Yosef is indeed the king, there's no question. That's how Vayechi ends. And then the Egyptian exile begins. But ultimately, Moshe and Aaron are the ones who take the Jews out of Egypt. They're not from Yehuda, they're also not from Yosef, they're from the tribe of Levi. But who will take the Jewish people into Eretz Yisrael? Moshe's successor, Yehoshua, who comes from which tribe? Yehoshua? Ephraim, who is of course a son of Yosef. So the leader who will take the Jewish people into Eretz Yisrael comes from Yosef. 
Later there will be the era of the judges, and one of the most famous is Gidon, who saves the Jewish people from their arch enemy. He's also from the tribe of Yosef. When finally kingship is established, and the first king is appointed, his name is Shaul. Shaul comes from whom? Binyamin, who is of course a child of Rachel. But Shaul is then dethroned, and he is replaced by the one who the Rebbeinu Shalaylam coronates as the eternal father of the dynasty of royalty in the Jewish people, David HaMelech, who comes, of course, from Shevet Yehuda. David is the son of Yishai, who is the son of Oived, who is the son of Boyaz, who is the descendant of Peretz, who is one of the twins that is born from the relationship between Yehuda and Tamar in Parshas Vayesh. David passes on, and he is succeeded by his son, of course, Shloima HaMelech. Hashem promised David, as the Tehillim says it many times, as the Navi says it, that royalty will not cease from the tribe of the dynasty, the lineage of David HaMelech. As already Yaakov says in Parshish Vayechi, Layasir, Shevet, Layasir, Shevet, Mi Yehuda, the scepter will not depart from Yehuda, nor will the ruler go away from Yehuda. Till Shiloh comes, as Rashi says, who will gather all the people. In other words, there is a promise that royalty belongs to the tribe of Yehuda. In fact, there's the famous Ramban, everybody knows probably on Parshas Vayechi, who wonders why the Chashmanoyim, who were such great people, and really saved the Jewish people, they saved the Torah, they saved Judaism. And within a hundred years, the Chashmanoi family became one of the most corrupt families, creating civil war and strife and terrible bloodshed in the land of Israel. The great-grandchildren of the original Chashmanoi surrendered to such corruption and such hatred, and there was such terrible bloodshed, ultimately they are the ones who brought in Rome they are the ones who invited Pompey into the land of Israel, into Yehuda, into Judea, which ultimately will lead to the Chorban Bayashemi. And the Ramban famously says that the Chashmanoi made one great mistake. And that is, they reclaimed the priesthood, which was their natural right, because they came from the family of Koyanem, of Aaron. Matisyo ben Yoichen and But they also took for themselves the throne of royalty, Malchus which essentially, inherently, does not belong to that tribe. The Ramban says this was a grand mistake. There's an interesting interpretation. I don't want to get into it now. Next, next Sunday we'll have a Mitzvah Shama Hanukkah here. There's a big question. Why there's no Masech Hanukkah in Shas? There's a Masech Megillah. Rabbeinu HaKadosh wrote a Masech for the Yomim Taivim. So we have a Masech Megillah dedicated for Purim. Why is there no Masech Hanukkah? The Alochus of Hanukkah, you have a Masech Shabbos in Gemara, Perib, Memad Likin. You have it in a few places. Hanukkah is mentioned in Mishnah, is Derech You have it with Achenveni, interesting places, but there's no tractate for Hanukkah. It's a very interesting question. One of the, one of the answers that's given, although many challenge it, and, and for a good reason, I think, one of the challenges is that the editor of the Mishnah was Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi came from the tribe of Yehuda. That's the dynasty of David HaMelech. And there was some agmas nefesh, there was some pain uh, uh, towards the Chashmanoyim because of what they did. Most, most G'dayli Yisrael refuted this answer because it's very strange. Because Hanukkah is a mitzvah that the Chazal created really to, uh, to introduce here a personal emotion based on your family would uh, be 
contrary to everything we know about the whole structure of halacha, mishnayis, and the personality of the editor of Mishnayis of Yudah But I'm just mentioning it in this context. Now, David is finally the king. It went to Yehuda. Shloimeh is the king. It went to Yehuda. Everything now seems well. It ended well. But we know that's not what happens. When Shloimeh HaMelech passes away, what's the next step? The kingship splits. And there's a new king emerges. And the new king's name is Yeravam. And Yeravam comes from which tribe? Anybody? Yeravam ben Avot comes from Ephraim, who was a son of Yosef. So suddenly now, whoa, there's a split again. And this split continues throughout the rest of Jewish history until the destruction of the first Beis HaMikdash. Never again is there one king. Never again. Shloimeh dies. His son Rechavim takes over. There's a, sw- there's a split. Malchus Yehuda, Malchus Yisrael. Ten of the tribes go to Yeravim. They declare allegiance to Yeravim, not to Rechavim. Rechavim has under him only two Shvatim, Yehuda and Binyamin, interestingly. But that's it. Most of the tribes are under Yeravim. And this split will continue for around 240 years. Ultimately, the Assyrian king will come and exile the Assyrian Hashvat and most of the ten tribes to exile. And one of the great mysteries of Jewish history, within 100 and 150 years, we will never hear of them again. And Ada Yehimazel, we don't know what happened to them. This doesn't mean there's no Jews left from the ten tribes. There's plenty of Jews from the ten tribes because there were other Jews from the other Shvatim who lived in the area of Yehuda and Yamit. And some, a minority of them remained. But the majority of the Assyrian Hashvatim are gone one of the great mysteries of Jewish history. Now when the Jews will ultimately go into exile, Yehuda and Binyamin, a hundred years, a little more than a hundred years after the expulsion of the ten tribes, they'll never have a king again. They'll come back under the Persian Empire. But they'll never have a Melech again. When the Hashmanayim will defeat the Syrian Greeks, they'll take the throne. They won't give it to Yehuda. So that split between Yosef and Yehuda that developed after Shlomo's passing continues throughout Jewish history. Now let's see this in the sources. Take a look, Malachim Aleph, Malachim Aleph, Perik Yud Aleph, Pasuk Koftes. It's a real pity we don't learn Tanakh. What should I tell you? Right now we're going to give a shir in one of few psukim in Tanakh. At that time, Yeravam, who is Yeravam? Yeravam is a great Jew, a scholar we'll soon see. Living at the time of Shloimeh HaMelech, he leaves Jerusalem. Who finds him? Achi HaShiloini, who is a prophet. He's covered with a new simla, a new tunic, a new shirt, and they're alone in the field. Achi HaShiloini fetches, he grabs the beautiful new shirt on Yeravim, and he rips it, he rents it, he tears it into 12 pieces. Tells Yeravim, you take ten pieces of the garment. You are going to get ten of the tribes of the Jewish people. One tribe will remain by David. Of course, besides Yehuda, one tribe will be Binyamin, will remain 
under David because him I chose for the sake of David and for the sake of Yerushalayim, the city of my choice. <laughs> If you follow my ways, then I will build for you a beautiful home, just like I built for David. I will afflict the descendants of David because, this is, he explains before, this is because of what happens at the end of the era of Shlomo's reign, in which Shlomo HaMelech, relatively to his level, sways away from the path of Hashem, but he says, it will not be forever. By the way, on this Pasuk, there's a very interesting Radak. Rabbeinu David Kimchi, one of the Rishonim who wrote a commentary on the Tanakh, he writes, it won't be forever. What does it mean it won't be forever? So the Radak says, very interesting, he says, from here is a response, for those who say that in vain we wait for Mashiach because it's never going to happen. He says, the Navi promised here, Yeravam, the split will not happen forever. He says, this never occurred because the split did happen forever. Once the Malucha split between Rechavim and Yeravim, they were never reconciled. They remained two separate empires and kingdoms throughout the entire Bayez Rishon until they all went into exile. When they came back from Bavel, only Yehuda and Binyamin came back from Bavel, from Iraq. 42,000 Jews, and they rebuilt the empire, so Yehuda and, Binyam, Yehuda and Yosef, Rechavim and Yeravim, never came back together. So he says, what's Achloi Kolayamim? This is going to happen only when Mashiach comes, that the two will come together. This is how the Radak explains the words Achloi Kolayamim. Anyway, Shleimah Melech passes on, Rechavim takes over the throne, the Jews come to Rechavim, they send a delegation, and they tell Rechavim, your father taxed us very heavily, he exacted too much from us, too much manpower, too much labor. Shleim HaMelech invested extraordinary resources in building the first base Hamikdash and in many of his great projects. And they asked Rechavim to uh, lighten the burden. So he took advice, and he took advice from two groups of people. He took advice from the elder statesmen who were by his father, and he took advice from the Chevron, you know, uh, who used to do the Kiddush Club with him on Shabbos afternoon, his buddies for the drinks, the young guys. And the older people said, you know, the Jews are right. Was, your father was a great man, but it was tough. You should change the modus operandi. But the young Hebrew said, no, 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 you got to go even harder. And he told them, I'm going to be worse than my father. He whipped you with whips, I will whip you with big rods, with, with beams, with, with, with trees, I will whip you. So they revolted. They revolted. This was short-sighted on the part of Rechavim, or actually it was a prophecy from Achia Shiloini from Hashem. And they split up, and they appoint Yeravim ben Avot as the new leader of the Jewish people, and he establishes the kingdom in the north of Eretz Yisrael, while Rechavim remains in the south of Eretz Yisrael in Yerushalayim. And that's it. This remains the split, what's known as Malchus Yehuda versus Malchus Yisrael throughout the book of Malachim. There's a split between these two worlds and the relationship is never peaceful between them. Sometimes it borders on great danger and war and conflict and generally Malchus Yisrael is much more assimilated than Malchus Yehuda. The kings over there are often very steeped in idolatry and many other 
depraved promiscuity, although a Malchus Yehuda, you also have some that are not tzaddikim. We discussed last week at length the story of Menashe, who was the son of Chizkiah, that's from Malchus Yehuda. But as I said, this split continues. So Yosef and Yehuda split, Rachel and Leah split, resurfaced. And it resurfaced in a very dramatic way. And now let's see how the Gemara looks at these psukim. Zog the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Davkuf Beis Amir Aleph. The Gemara, Perek Chelek, 11th chapter, discusses the story of Yeravu. What does the Pasuk want to tell me? That Yeravim went to Century 21 that day and he found a sale, it was Black Friday, and he went and he bought himself a new shirt. I mean, what's the rel- What's this message here? I have to know what his uniform was like. It was a Salma Chadosha. Why don't you tell me which company? What was the label? What's the point? Chazal always understood that when the Pasuk is giving us these details, it's highly significant and sometimes metaphoric of a message. Amar Reb Nachman, Kisal Mechadosha. It's a metaphor. Ma'asal Mechadosha, Ein Bashum Doifi, Avtai Rosu, Shal Yeravim Lahaya Bashum Doifi. A new tunic has no stain, no blemish. It's perfect, it's impeccable. It wasn't used yet. The Torah of Yeravim Benevat was Ein Bashum Doifi. It was beautiful. It was impeccable. It was flawless. Davar Acher, another interpretation. Salma Chadasha, Shechitshu Dvarim Shaloshama Oizen Meyoyma. They innovated Chidushim that no ear has ever heard. Umayu Shneim Levadam Basada. What does it mean they're alone in the field? What does it mean they're alone in the field? Amar Rabbi Yehuda Amarav, Shekol Talmidei Chachamim Doimin Lifneim Shisme Hasada. They're alone in the field, meaning. Relative to them, Achia Shiloni and Yeravim, all of the scholars of the generation are like the grass in the field. The Amri, others say, Shekol Taimi Torah Magulin Lahem Kesod. A field is an open place, it's not walled, it's revealed for everybody to see. All the mysteries, all the reasons, all the depth of Torah is revealed to these two people like an open field. Here you see, who Yeravah ben Avot was. Everyone else is like the grass of the field. His Torah is unblemished. He has chidushim that no ear will hear. So the expectations from Yeravah are great. Achi says, if you follow God's ways, I will build for you a home, not forever, but for generations like David HaMelech. And yet in reality, when you continue reading the Tanakh, everybody knows at least from Pirkei Yavis, Yeravah is chotah v'hechti He becomes not only one of the greatest corrupt kings, but he is the one who creates a renaissance of idolatry in Eretz Yisrael. He creates not one golden calf, two golden calves in Don and Bethel. He prohibits Jews from visiting the Beis HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. He creates a transformation in Jewish culture. The Gon Hadar, the Rebbe wasn't from the small Hebra. He was Mamish the Gon Hadar. And that's why he was chosen as a king. After Shloim HaMelech. And ten tribes are under him. This is what God wanted. And yet he becomes to the point that the Mishnah says in Sanhedrin, Yeravam Eilei Chelek Loilam Haba. From Kol Yisrael besides Yeravam. We discussed last week Menashe, but the Mishnah also says Sanhedrin, that's how this Gemara comes in. Comes the Pasuk and says, Malachim Aleph Perik Yud Gimel. Pasuk Lamad Gim. Achar Adavur Azeh Eloi Shav Yeravam Medar Kehara. After this event, Yeravam never repented. He creates altars, bombas everywhere with priests, worshipping sacrifices to the pagan gods 
that dominated then that, that region, and now he brought back to Eretz Yisrael. Frek the Gemara Sanhedrin Kovbeis, the same Amit. Achar Adover Azel Eishavi Ravu Medakera. My Achar. After what? What's Achar Adover? After which event? What happened? There had to be some event that after this he still didn't repent. What happened? Why do you think he wouldn't repent? So the Gemara quotes an incredible tradition. Amar Rabab. Rabab says, Achar, you know which event? Hashem grabbed Yeravam by his begot, by his garment. You right away hear the comparison to a Pasuk in Vayeshev, right? Vatispasehu bevigdoy. The wife of Potiphar grabs Yosef Hizeda by his begot. But here it's not the wife of Potiphar. Here it's the Kevayachal grabs him by his begot. And he says, Chazorbach, do tshuva, repent. And here's the deal. Pretty interesting deal. Me, you, and the son of Yishai, Tovid HaMelech, we will take a stroll in Ganeiden in paradise. Oh my Lord, you know, turns to Hashem and says, Me b'roish. Who goes first in the stroll? So Hashem says, Ben Yishai b'roish. The son of Yishai goes ahead. If so, he tells God, I'm not interested. And that's the end of Yeravim. So Hashem comes to Yeravim and says, Me, you, Ben Yishai. is just us three. Yeravim says, wonderful, I just want to know who's walking first. Says, David HaMelech. Who's actually much older than him too. Two generations ago. Yeravim says, I don't want. And that's it. So, after this happens, he doesn't do tshuva. He just deteriorates. He becomes worse. What does this mean? Now let's see what the Radak is referring to when he explains, this won't happen forever. So we now come to another Navi, Yecheskel. Yecheskel lives after the destruction of the first Beis Amit. During the destruction, he has seen the split and what it resulted. Because the fact that the Jews were split, ultimately weakened both sides. They couldn't unite. Generally, if you want to understand Jewish history, you'll see that almost every single Khurban in Jewish history was caused directly or indirectly, but usually directly because Jews were split. Bayez Sheni, the Gemara clearly says in a famous Masech Yuma about Sinas Chinam. And if you know the stories of the, the, the stories of the time during the, Rome, the rebellion against Rome in 66 after the Common Era, which brought to the Chorban two years later, 68 or 70, those years when the Bayez Sheni was destroyed, there was terrible disarray in the Jewish world. But already by its Rishon, there's a complete split. As I said, for hundreds of years, there's two separate kingdoms and they don't get along. And ultimately, they're both weakened, and one of them completely disappears from the face of the planet. They don't disappear, but we don't know where they are. They're lost, and you're left only with Yehuda and Binyamin and the king, and ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, destroys that too, and the survivors are exiled to Babel, to Iraq, and ultimately, most of them remain. There are only 42,000 come with the second Aliyah through Ezra and Nehemiah and rebuild the second base on Mikdash. Yecheskel Anavi is the Navi after the end of Ba'is Rish, and Perek Lamed Zayin, Chapter 37 of Yechezkel, which we read at the Haftar, as the Haftar of Ayigash. Why do we read it as the Haftar of Ayigash? It will soon become clear. But it's really a summation of Ayigash in future days. 
Yecheskel has an incredible prophecy. Yecheskel Perik Lamed Zayin Pasuk Tesvav. Vayidvar Hashem Elai Leimer. God says to me, Vaata Ben Adam. I want you to take two trees, two trunks of wood, two pieces of wood, two logs. On one right, it's for Yehuda and the children of Israel, his friends. On one right, it's for Yosef. This is the tree of Ephraim and all of Beis Yisrael Chaveirah. Note that in Pasuk Tezayin, in the beginning, he says, At the end, he says, Why? Because Yehuda only has one Shevet under him. Ephraim, of course, has ten Shvatim together with him. So that's why it's V'chol Beis Yisrael Chaveirah. Now bring the two logs together. Bring them close as one tree. And both logs will become one in your hand. The people will say, what's this, Maisa? What are you doing? I'm taking the two logs from the tribe of Yosef and the tribe of Yehud, and they're becoming one. Enough of the split, enough of them being two nations, two peoples, two kingdoms, two empires. I know there's two logs, but they're coming together, they will be integrated, they will become united as one, and the nation will finally achieve unity. David, my servant, will be their Nasi, will be their king for eternity. This is the prophecy of Yechezkel. When does this prophecy happen? In Bayez Shemi, there's no king. Not from Yosef and not from Yehuda. If there is a king for a hundred years, it's from Levi. And that also doesn't work out because ultimately Rome will take over. The Persians are defeated by the Greeks. The Greeks are defeated by the, by the, the Syrian Greeks are defeated by the Hashmonaim. The Hashmonaim are defeated by the Romans. And the Romans will exile the Jewish people from Eretz Yisrael. And there's no king. So when does this Nebuah happen? This Nebuah happens, that's what the Radak says, when Mashiach comes. Who will be the king, a descendant of David HaMelech? Mashiach comes from the family of David and Shlomo and Yehuda, as the Rambam famously says in Hilchus Malachim, the end of Perik Aleph. It's one of the third, the principle of Mashiach is Mizera David of Shlomo. And then the two will completely unite. One log and another log will become one with David Avdi Nasi Lahem Lo'el. In fact, in fact, we have another tradition Famous Gemara in Sukkah, Dafnun Beis, Omer Aleph, says the Gemara, the last source, Mashiach ben David, Mashiach, who's going to be revealed speedily in our days, Shem says, ask for something. In Jewish tradition, we have a concept of two Mashiachs, Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David. It's mentioned in Gemara Masech Sukkah once, but in Zoya, it's mentioned many times. In Midrashim, many times. In works of Kabbalah, many times. There's Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David. According to the Gemara, Mashiach ben Yosef is killed, and Mashiach ben David asks for life. In Raya Mehem, in Zoya, right? remember the section of Zoya, Parshish Kisetzi, it says that the two Mashiachs could be one person, who's both Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David, which according to Yechezkel, the two logs are becoming one, and there's one leader who comes from David, but the other tribe, the tribe of Yosef, is somehow united with him. 
So already even in Mashiachs, we have these two Mashiachs. And whether Mashiach ben Yosef will be killed before Mashiach ben David, which is one possibility. I mean, this is discussed in Svarim at length, the various possibilities of how Mashiach ben Yosef will, will emerge, will develop. The Arizal, the, the, the Chaim Vital writes in Priyetz Chaim that the Arizal used to tell his students that when you daven you should have kavona that Mashiach ben Yosef should not die. And then he says, well, our great sins, our Rebbe, the Arizal passed away young. In other words, they attributed, they saw in the Arizal Mashiach ben Yosef. But whatever the situation is, we see here a concept that even the Mashiach, you have Ben Yosef, you have Ben David. So this means in summation, you have Rachel and Leah. And then you have Yosef and Yehuda. And then you have Yehoshua and Gidon. And then you have Shoal and David. Shoal comes from the tribe of Rachel. David comes from the tribe of Yehuda. Shoal and Rachel, there's also a lot of contention between them. You can't compare Shoal to David. And there was a tremendous conflict. Shoal tries to kill David, Shaul from the tribe of Yosef, I mean from the tribe of Binyamin, not Yosef, Shaul from the tribe of Binyamin. And then David and Shlema from the tribe of Yehuda. Yeravim splits up from them, he's from the tribe of Yosef. The split continues throughout Jewish history. Yecheskel says that in the future, the two will become one, and Vidavid Avdi Nasi Aleihem La'ayla. All that this shows us is, it's not over, till it's over. And sometimes it seems that it ended. It did not end. This means this is not a conflict about a colorful tunic. <laughs> that colorful tunic did not exist in the times of Yeravim. Or in the times of Shoal. Or is it only about a dream? Of course it's about that. But these are reflected reflections of great ideas that split almost all of Jewish history. And the split we do not heal until the future. So what is this split really about? Why is there a split? What's the meaning of it? What's the message of it? What's behind it? I'm now going to be a nudnik. And I'm going to ask what they call a klotzkash. You know what a klotzkash is? Klotzkash is what your teacher used to say, a stupid question. But like you and me know... The only reason we call them stupid questions is because we don't have answers for them. Because usually the stupid questions are always the best questions. But nobody has answers for them. They say, when you get older, you'll understand. But those are always the best questions. The simple questions that little children ask and say, wow, that's interesting, I never thought about it. The Gemara says that Hashem offered Yeravam a grand deal. You do tshuva. Va'ani, look in the source. Va'ani, va'ata Hashem is precise. He obviously knows what he's saying. He told Yeravim, me, you, and Ben Yishai are going to go on Ganeid. Who comes first? Yeravim. He said so. He didn't say ani uben Yishai va'ata. Ani va'ata uben Yishai. Yeravim says, me berois. Did I hear that right? Shaita. He told you, you're first. Who goes first? Hashem says, oh, he goes first. First of all, Hashem said the other way. He said, you're going first. Second of all, why is Yeravim asking if Hashem said it already? A ye told me, a vigilant Sechassid once told me that he heard from Reb Chaim Shmulevich, Reb Chaim Shmulevich was the Rosh Hashiva of the Miri Yeshiva. 
in Mir and Shanghai, and then ultimately in Yerushalayim. So Reb Chaim Shmulevich once said, Reb Chaim Shmulevich had a wonderful sense of humor. And he was an emotional person. So Reb Chaim once humorously was talking about this Gemara. So he said, he said, you know, I go to a chuppah, right? For my students, I'm a chabad, me with Siddiq Kedush, and I officiate at the wedding. So the MC, the master of ceremonies, gets up and says, Isman mechabad, rabbin shal kol b'nei ha-goyle, rashishiva, gon hador. With all of the titles and adjectives that befit this great man with Siddiq Kedushin. Chaim says, you think I go up? I don't go up. Ich will I don't go up, I want to hear it again. Let him do it again. You know, when the guy, where is he, where is he, you do it again. So he says, Yerofam heard. Hashem said, me, you, and Ben Yisha. He said, I want to hear it again. I want to hear it again. He says, who's going first? Hashem said, again, I'm not going to say it. You heard it once, I'm not going to say it again. It's a cute vart. But what's Taka Dibshah? What's the, what's the, how do we really understand it? There's a little sefer called Lekutei Hashas. Lekutei Hashas is not really a sefer that's learned in yeshivas because of its author. The author of it was Dariza. It has a commentary on Gemara, not every piece, a few selective pieces from Shas, from the perspective of Kabbalah. So it's very, very uh, deep, it's extremely abstract. And it's, as most of Kabbalah, code language. In the Kutei Ashas Lahariza, he brings this Gemara, and he raises this. It was written by his student, Reb Chaim Vital, who wrote down most of the teachings of the Arizal. The Arizal, of course, lived in Svas. He taught all of his Kabbalah two years, and he passed away in the year Shin Lamed Beis. Fifteen seventy-two, at the young age of thirty-six or thirty-eight or even younger, there's an argument about that. And Reb Chaim Vital wrote down his Torah, and he brings a little shtickle from the Arizal, a few lines, very kabbalistically, and there he addresses his perspective on this Gemara, on this Gemara in Sanhedrin. Thankfully, the Balatanya, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi, the Balatanya of Hashulchan Aruch, quotes this Lekuti Ashas of the Arizal. In a discourse of his, in his book, Torah Oyer on Parshas Vayigash, where he discusses the conflict in Yehuda and Yosef, and he gives some insight in his own style, in his own inimitable style, to understand the words of Dariza. What I want to show you is, Be'ezir Hashem, that in this little question, that it seems, seems like maybe a Nudnik's question, of the change of order in Hashem's words, lay the key to understanding at least one aspect of the great mystery of the conflict between Yehuda and Yosef. And this idea is an idea that's discussed in various works of Hasidus, especially in the works of the Balatanya and his successors. They, they discuss it a little bit in abstract language, as usual in Kabbalistic and Hasidic literature. But I'm going to try to take one Nekuda and apply it and bring it down the way I understood it. Now I should say that the conflict between Yehuda and Yosef has numerous interpretations and very different ones. Sometimes from one extreme to another extreme. 
And it's always true with Torah, it has so many faces and so many angles and so many perspectives, and it's multi-layered and it's all true. We are now focusing on one perspective, one dimension in this conflict. Yehuda and Yosef are not arguing about a small little detail. There is a fundamental disagreement that takes place between these two brothers. Consciously, unconsciously, in words and in thoughts. And as we shall see, it's a conflict that's not resolved. It's not so easy to resolve. Not collectively and certainly not individually. And although it needs to be resolved, and it will be resolved, and it should be resolved, and really there's no conflict, but that's true about most conflicts. On one level there's a conflict, and on another level there's really no conflict. There's a possibility for unity. That's what Yechaskel talks about. And yet we have to work through that conflict. Now we have to understand as a result of this, that we are dealing with two ideas, and as the Gemara says, in Erevin, Elu Elu Divrei Lekim Chayim, both are the words of the living God, both have an emes in them, and yet there is still room for a tremendous disagreement, and in this case, such a dramatic disagreement, with brought, which brought extraordinary results, both in the positive and in the negative. You could see it immediately, I'm going to try to say this, B'Kitzer, and I hope we'll be able to grasp it swiftly. You could see it in their names. Because always the ideas are captured in names. And this the Balatanya says, he says, study the name Yehuda and study the name Yosef. What does the word Yosef literally mean? To increase. To add. Rachel named him Yosef because Yosef Hashem li From the word Hoysafa, addition. Lahoysif, lahosif. Tosif od. Yosef means to add, to increase. Or if I want to translate it a little more broadly, growth. Yosef represents growth. What does the word Yehuda mean? Gratitude is one meaning. What else? What else? Right? We say every morning, Yehuda from the word which means I submit, I surrender. I confess, I acquiesce. And of course the two are very connected because real gratitude is a form of a form of submission. In fact the Medrash says, lay a name Yehuda Yehuda is because he would be the one who would be Moida. Vayaka Yehuda, Vayoimer, Tzotka, Mimeni. He is the one who confesses publicly and says that Tamar is pregnant because of him. He doesn't shirk responsibility, he doesn't run away from it. So Yehuda from the word Maidim Haida is submission, Yosef is growth. Now, what does this mean? Let's look at one more dramatic change in Jewish history. The Shekhinah comes down into the world in two forms. In the desert, in the Mishkan. In Eretz Yisrael, ultimately in the Beis HaMikdash. But not till 400 years after they settle. Shloimeh builds the Beis HaMikdash around four centuries after they're in Eretz Yisrael. What do they have for four centuries? A Mishkan. Most of the time, it's in Noiv, it's in Givoin, it's in Gilgal. But for 369 years, where is the Mishkan? In Shiloh. Whose territory is Shiloh? Anybody remembers? Yosef. 
the Beis Hamikdash will go to Yerushalayim, be built by David, designed by David, built by Shlomo. That's in the section of Yehuda and partly Binyamin. Mostly Yehuda. So the Beis Hamikdash Yehuda, the Mishkan Yosef. Take a look at the Mishkan versus the Beis Hamikdash. The Mishkan, the roof is made of what? The Mishkan's roof. Yiriyos, tapestries that are made from what? Beautiful designed skin of animals. Balichai. Rams, goats, tachash. The walls are made of what? The crushum, the beams are made of what? Wood, I'd say shit. Wood. And the floor of the Mishkan is what? Earth. Afar HaMishkan. You're learning HaMasech Tesoyte. You know about the Afar HaMishkan. So you have like this. In the hierarchy of creation, we have Doimim, Tzimeach, Chai, Medaber. Doimim is inanimate, silent, rocks, minerals. Tzimeach is the botanic world, vegetation, produce. Chai, the animal kingdom. Medaber, the human race. The Mishkan, the roof is made of Chai, the animal skin. The walls, you come lower down, are made of tzimeach, wood, which grows on trees. The earth is doimim, it's made of earth. In fact, the earth always changed because the Mishkan was mobile and they just had whatever earth they had right there in the desert as they were traveling. What about the Beis Hamikdash? The Beis Hamikdash was made of what? The roof, the walls, what? Stone. Stone, you could see it today. Stone. In fact, there's a prohibition. The Pasuk tells us there's a prohibition to have wood, Sticking out anywhere in the base Hamikdash, they had wood, but the wood was with, hidden inside. There was a prohibition. There was an issue to have eights. In fact, the Gemara says this was the mistake of Kairish of Cyrus with the second base Hamikdash. It's a separate story. So the base Hamikdash, the roof is made of rocks, the walls are made of stone, and the earth is made of stone. All doimim. Where is the tzemeach? It's hidden somewhere inside. Where is the chai? It's not even here. Now, Mishkan Shiloi is an interesting hybrid. You know how Shiloi works? Shiloi, the walls were made of stone. But the roof was made of the Ureus, the tapestries. So this was an intermediary. The Mishkan in the desert was Chai, Tzimeach, Doimen. A hierarchy of creation. Mishkan Shiloi is somewhere in the middle. The roof is Chai, but the walls you jump to Doimen. The Beis Hamikdash is all Doimen. All rocks, all stone. It's this distinction which seems like, is it so significant? It's extremely significant. Because it represents two philosophies, two perspectives. One is Yosef, the world of Shiloh, and one is Yehuda, the world of Yerushalayim. What's the difference? So now let me change the subject a little bit (laughs) and ask you a question. And I know it's not an easy question to answer and everyone has different opinions on this and Every person themselves has different opinions, depends how you wake up in the morning and if what type of coffee you had this morning. Yosef and Yehuda are raising a very serious question in life. And I think the best way to pose this question simply and bluntly is, what's the purpose? What's the purpose of life? Is the purpose of life Yosef or is the purpose of life Yehuda? Is the objective of life self-actualization? Self-realization, self-expression. Is the purpose of life for you to maximize who you are as a human being, who you are as a Jew. 
maximize all of your potentials, suck the marrow out of life, as the poets would say. Live life to your fullest, express all of your talents and resources. Live a life, in Hebrew they call it hakshama atzmit, full self-realization. Grow and grow and grow and yosef until you reach your zenith, your peak, and then grow even more. I think the first person who climbed to the top of Mount Everest was a man named, anybody knows? I think Edmund Holly, right? Huh? Edmund Hillary? Okay. In 1953, I believe. A year before, he tried to reach the top, what is it, 29,000 miles or so? And he didn't make it. But they made in England some dinner for him. And he failed, actually. But they wanted to honor the, 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 the fact that he tried, you know. Trying is also a significant uh, experience. Maybe the most significant. So, uh, as he spoke, he was extremely emotional. He was not very happy because he didn't make it to the top. So they had a major portrait of Mount Everest. So in the middle of his speech, he turns around to the mountain and he starts speaking to Mount Everest. And he says, I will beat you. I know that I failed this time, but I will beat you. You know why? Because you stopped growing, but I'm continuing to grow. And that's, that's a, a pr- profound idea. You, you're, you're big, but you stopped growing. And I'm, next year... He made it to the top. He made it to the top of Mount Everest. And many have, or some have emulated him and followed in his footsteps. One perspective on life is, the purpose of life is absolute self-expression and self-realization of all of your resources. Physical, spiritual, emotional. There's another perspective on life. The ultimate objective of life is submission, transcendence. Ask not what God can do for you. Ask what you can do for God. Ask not what your wife, what your husband can do for you. Ask what you can do for them. Ask not what life can do for you. Ask what you can do for life. Duty, loyalty, dedication, submission, Yehuda. That's the ultimate purpose of life. Even within the Jewish world. How do we understand? And it's a serious question. What's the purpose of religion? What's the real purpose of religion? Is the purpose of religion to influence people to forget about themselves and surrender to something higher? Or is the ultimate purpose of religion for people to actually meet themselves and become what they are really capable of becoming? What do you want to teach your children? What does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be a Jew? What does it really mean? Does it mean it's an opportunity for you to experience ultimate self-expression, or no, its ultimate purpose is you're an Eved Hashem, surrender to something, to a truth that's higher than you, that's deeper than you, that's more eternal than you. And the purpose of life is ultimately to dedicate yourself to that truth, to surrender to that truth. Is it Yosef or is it Yehuda? What's the purpose of marriage? What's the purpose of religion? What's the purpose of life? The last Mishnah, Masech the Kedushin says, Ani nivresi l'shamesh eskaini. I was created to serve Hashem. There's no question that's the M.O. of Judaism. You're not going to find anything else about Judaism. Ani nivresi l'shamesh eskaini. Avadai heim. 
But that itself, what does that mean? What does that mean? You know, there's two girsis in that Mishnah Masech Kedushin. Fascinating. Two girsis. The regular girsis, Ani Nivreis L'Shamashas Koini. The Malech Shlem has a different girsis. Ani Loinivreisi Elo L'Shamashas Koini. Is it just semantics? Not just semantics. The two girsis contain two perspectives. So what do you say about my question? Huh? Moshe Eved Hashem? Moshe is the greatest prophet, the greatest Jew. The Rambam calls him Mifchar Mina Anushi. And what's his greatest experience? Eved Hashem, a servant of Hashem. And an Eved, as the Gemara says in Kedushin, Kol Masha Kone Eved. Kone Rabbi, an Eved belongs. Yad Eved ki Yad Rabbi, that's what you're saying. But you're making us You don't like that. You like Yosef, okay. That's you like Yosef. You like Yosef. Well, what's the truth? <laughs> huh? Oh, so now you're like a Jew. You want the cholent and you want to eat it too. You want both. Okay, very nice. You don't want to give up on anything. Oh. A child. A child surrenders to a father or a child... Depends what type of child, I guess. Depends what type of father, right? Do you want your children to be avodim? Or do you want your children to be bonim? It's a good question. I don't know if anybody has a choice anymore today. It used to be a question today. I don't know if you have a choice because they're already at four years old. They're teenagers, yeah? Very good. A Mishnah in Sanhedrin, Lamad Zion. The world was created for me. For me. Now what does it mean for me? For me to be a narcissistic, self-centered, mention fresher. I don't think that's what the Mishnah means. I don't think it's consistent with the rest of Shishas in the Mishnah. Somebody once said, how do you drown a narcissist? To put mirrors on the bottom of the ocean. Bishvili Nivra Oila means, somebody once told me about somebody, he says, be careful with him because he's a self-made man and he worships his creator. <laughs> you got that? Bishvili Nivra Oila, what does it really mean? Of course, very good. When the Gemara says, when the Mishnah says, Chayev Adam Layam Bishvili Nivra Oilam, it doesn't mean Bishvili my original name is not Jacobson. I have to make a confession. My original name is Yakabashvili. Because we come from Georgia. My grandfather comes from Georgia. Georgia, South Russia, not Georgia. In the States. So our name was Yakabashvili. Yakabashvili, Shvili in Georgian means son. So when my grandfather left Russia and after the war on false passports as a Polish citizen, like many Russian Jews, some Russian Jews, so he changed his name from Yakubashvili to Yakubson, to Jacobson, because it's, it's a translation of it. So there was somebody in Shul who used to get annoyed with me for whatever reason when I was a kid. So he would say, there's a reason your name is Shvili, because your philosophy is Bishvili Nivra Ha'olam. Shvili, Shvili, Shvili. He says, enough with that philosophy. But what does it really mean? It really means Bishvili Nivra Ha'olam. That itself, is it a call to duty? Or is it a call to self-expression? In other words, Bishun, the whole world was created for me, for me to reach my shlemus, Or the whole world was created for my service, my duty. This is my responsibility. On me depends the fate of the world. Or does it mean both? Or does it mean one of them? But that's a very interesting Maimon Chazal. We all know the Medrash, the famous Medrash in Parsha Shmini. Like Nitnu HaMitzvah Elah. The mitzvahs were given to refine the person, to bring out the best in the person. 
Lazakos means to give merit, but Lazakos, it says in Svarim, also comes from the word Lazakos, from the word Zach. Clear, refinement. Lazakos, that the Medrash says, Lazarev Benetzabrius. In other words, it's the ultimate opportunity for you to purify. It's not just purify in a, in a, in a, um, in a negative, in a, in a sense of, in a repressive term, but purify in the sense to really make the best out of you. And even the discipline that Allah is based on, what is it really about? Is it discipline in order to crush, or is it discipline in order to develop, actualize? What do you want to teach your child? What do you think your child should hear in yeshiva? What is the purpose of Yiddishkeit? What's the purpose of life? Self-expression or self-transcendence? Yosef or Yehuda? What do the Nashim Tzedkaniyas say? You said both. Anybody else? You agree with her both. <laughs> what do you think we are teaching today? In most educational institutions, which philosophy do you think is being taught? Huh? Yosef, you say, and you say Yehuda. So I guess your kids go to different schools. Or maybe the teacher changes his mind from Monday to Tuesday. <laughs> you find that they're teaching Yehuda. They're teaching submission. That's Yehuda. Submission. Submission. Surrender, right? Ask not who you are. Ask what God wants from you. What the community wants from you. What society wants from you. What Tati and Mami wants from you. What the Rosh Hashiva wants from you. What the Shmigger wants from you is always the most important thing. I say, but say the second half of the Mishnah. There's another half to that Mishnah. And then afterwards, that Mishnah says two things. Very good. The Mishnah says, What's the difference? That's Yosef and Yehuda. That Mishnah, that's Yosef and Yehuda. There's two paths in Avodah Hashem. Yosef is the beautiful child. What does it mean, You think Yosef stood four hours a day in front of the mirror and made sure to get all the label design only? His cufflings were mamish made the chvezu. His shoes. You think at the surface, that's what Yosef was busy with. Yosef, just like his mother, is they're beautiful, they're handsome. You read the story of Yosef throughout Bereshus, and what's your feeling you get from Yosef? He seizes every opportunity and always rises to the top. Wherever he is, in the worst circumstances, he has a chen, he's cheerful, he's charming, he's graceful. He's fun, if I could say so. He's exciting. He's an entrepreneur. He's original. He's creative. He never lets life get to him. He's really a master of life. Where do you see it most? In Vayeshev. He's in prison. He has no mother. She's been gone for years. He has no father. His father thinks he's dead. He has no siblings. They sold him into slavery. He is literally alone in the world. There's no visitors coming to him. And nobody's sending him a letter. Nobody's sending... So imagine... Can we even imagine... Like survivors alone in the world, mamish. He's not married. He has nobody in the world. Nobody. You would think this is the greatest recipe for what? Depression. Depression of the worst kind. And yet there's one little seed. 
he walks in one morning and he sees two Gentiles, a butler and a baker, who were probably anti-Semites between you and me. Because they were friends of Paitifa. Vihinam Zoyafim. You know what Zoyafim means? You know what Zoyafim means? It's when you walk into a yeshiva early in the morning with the boys look like. <laughs> it's called a sour face. Kalamutna. Miserable. Zoyafim. Eh, eh. Lifeless. Moshe turns to them in prison. And he asks four words. A Yosef. And he asks them a question of four words. Madua, Pneichem, Royim Hayoyim. Why are you so depressed? Why are you so down? I never understood. What type of question is this? Yosef, what are we, dancing kazatskas at a bar mitzvah? What are we, at a Viennese table eating pyrava cheesecake at a wedding? We're on death row in an Egyptian dungeon for heaven's sake. That's why we're depressed. What do you want us to do? He doesn't understand. And let's understand, as a result of that question, what happens? They tell him their dreams. He explains to them the meaning of their dreams. He deciphers the mystery of their dreams. Two years later, the king will have dreams, and he will be summoned to explain his dreams. And as a result, he will become the prime minister of Egypt, and he will save the world and the Jewish people from famine. Why? Because one early morning, in a dungeon, he saw two non-Jews depressed. And he put his hands on their shoulders and he said, Chevre, what's wrong? Talk to me. I'm here for you. Tell me why you said. Those four words, changed history quite literally. Think about that the next time you wake up in the morning. And you see two people who look pretty depressed. And this happens constantly. And what you can do. I'm not telling you you're going to become the Prime Minister of Egypt as a result of that. And I'm not sure you want to become, uh, you want to take over Assisi and become the Prime Minister of Egypt. I'm not sure you want that in your resume. But it just shows you the perspective of Yahadus, of Torah, how history develops. History is not created by major people doing major things. History is created by one individual saying a warm good morning and showing a true gesture of caring and love to somebody in prison who may not be Jewish and not your family who looks depressed. But what does this tell us about Yosef's personality? Yosef's philosophy, Yosef's derech and avoida was he always brought out to the world that Yiddishkeit makes you beautiful. That Yiddishkeit enhances your life physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. That's Yosef. Mesalso Mesaroi. Yiddishkeit creates a life that is beautiful on every level. It gives you chayn, grace, joy, happiness, perspective, meaning, depth. Yosef. It's there to allow you to grow and to maximize your potentials and reach your fullest self. As a human being, as a Jew, materially and spiritually, in this world and in the next world, not only in the next world, but in this world. That's the story of Yosef. And even when you're down in the gutter, it holds you, it sustains you. It doesn't turn you into lazy, apathetic, depressed person. On the contrary, Yosef's life is that unique partnership between tremendous trust, but also tremendous creativity, tremendous work, tremendous labor. He never sits back and says, God, come on, send down the helicopter. 
He works and grows and grows and grows. And he has this unique mazel, this unique hatzloch, it's this partnership that happens. There's no question, on the most basic level, Yosef is one of the most beloved characters in the Tanakh. You read his story, and you have to love this boy. 17 years old. Ah! But, he's very disciplined. The wife of Poitifar tries to have him surrender to her promiscuity. Vayimoyim. And by Yemoyim with Hashalsheles, the Shinnevarov writes in Divrei Yecheskel, why is there Hashalsheles and by Yemoyim? I think I shared with you once. By So the Shinnevarov says that, Gizok, nay, nay, nay. I don't know if he said it in Yiddish to the wife of Petifa, I don't know. I don't know if she understood Yiddish. But that's what he says, nay, nay, nay. This wasn't an easy moment. Yosef had to fight for himself. But Yosef understood that all of Torah, including the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noyach, are there to create a Yefei Torah and a Mara. That's Yosef. Yehuda has a different perspective. Yehuda says the ultimate truth of life is to submit. And we bow down by Moedim. The ultimate purpose of life is to recognize there is a truth completely beyond yourself. And you have an opportunity and a privilege to serve that, to become connected to that, to fulfill that purpose, to fulfill that calling, to fulfill that duty. Now you say we want both. Of course we want both. What do we emphasize? What should we emphasize? Why should we emphasize surrender? You don't want us to emphasize surrounding. No. I know Mr. Franco. Right, so I think his last is more like the other way. This situation is uncomfortable. Maybe you decide and you take the best of that situation. You learn from the suffering. And you move forward and create a life for yourself. You deal with life on life's terms and grow from it. That can prove life. Right. You have to submit. Why? Why? I'm just asking. Okay. Because we have a Yetzirah, so you have to submit, yeah? Okay, and you say, Einoid Muvadai. Okay, beautiful, huh? If there's submission, there won't be leadership. You mean because there won't be personality presence? Is that what you mean? There's more personality in surrender. Really? Why? A power above you. Okay. Ani Yosef. Ich bin Yosef. Now you take a position and move forward. 
Right, right, right. There's good and bad in both. And if you, you're not smart, your nature is to be uh, very strong-minded. You have to know that you should be a narcissist. And if you go the other way, it's a bit You're saying there's good and bad and all. Okay, everyone obviously said the right thing, <laughs> of course. And really, whatever you say is the right thing, because you're talking from, this is a question of your own life, of everybody's life. I'm going to put the question, a drop difference, which really captures it, I think, in philosophical terms. Is the purpose of Yiddishkeit to find yourself in God, or is the purpose of Yiddishkeit to... Lose yourself in God. Do you want to find yourself in Hashem or do you want to lose yourself in Hashem? Now let's understand. To find yourself in Hashem is beautiful because I find myself there. It's a Geshmaka thing. But there's two major challenges, as you said. First of all, we have a Yetzahara. We have a narcissistic demon in us. How do we guarantee that self-expression doesn't become a form of self-worship? And what happens if myself actually guides me to do something that may be destructive to me and especially to other people? It happens every day. I want to express myself. I have a wife, I have children, I have a family, I have responsibilities. Who cares? That's what can happen. In other words, you become a shikal of a desire, you become an idol. And we know that today's society, we all celebrate the freedoms that modernity have given us. The freedom to be able to choose how you want to live your life. You choose your career, you choose your relationships, some people. You choose where you want to live, you choose, you have so much choice. But doesn't choice also come with a tremendous question, a tremendous hazard? And that is, what happens if you choose a path that leads you into the abyss? What happens if you choose a path that ultimately you regret later? What happens if you choose a path that's irreversible? What happens if you choose a path that ruins other people's lives, but you say, it's my path? I think there was a Russian politician who once said, I have great news for you. Yesterday we were standing at the edge of the abyss. Today we took a giant step forward. So taking giant step forwards is a be- beautiful. But where am I taking the giant step forward? And sometimes in the name of self-expression, especially when it comes to intimate issues, my self-expression may contradict everything that Torah has to say, everything that Judaism has to say. So what is it? That's one issue. But there's another issue. And the other issue is, can I really reduce truth to my experience? In other words, do I not really fail the truth if I define the objective of all of life is that I should find myself in God? But what about those truths that completely transcend me? What about those truths that are completely infinite, that are completely beyond me? It remains a little pathetic and limiting if I define that ultimate based on my experience. If I'll experience it, if I'll find it, it'll be great. But the truth of Hashem precedes creation, precedes the human imagination, precedes the human experience. In a way, if I cut myself off from losing myself in God... Ultimately, I cut myself off from a relationship with the absolute truth on its terms, not on my terms. Isn't it true that in life I have to be able to ask not only what I want, but what you want, 
Because there there may be a far deeper truth than I will be able to experience. On the other hand, if we go only to submission, then what can happen? The person is completely lost, like you said. I'm not here. I could become a robot. I surrender to you. And what happens? Where is my emotions? Where is my intellect? And therefore, there's a tension in life between these two facets. And in Yiddishkeit, you will see the trend of Yosef. You will tre- see this trend of Yehuda. We will discuss Kabbalah's El Malchut Shamayim. And we will discuss Bishlili Nivra'ayla. We will discuss Leitniknu HaMitzvah's El Litzarev Venes Habrias. And we will discuss Eved Hashem. We will discuss Aves Hashem and Yiris Hashem. Bonematem Hashem Alekechem and Avodai Hain. We will have both trends. Yosef emphasizes one. Yehuda emphasizes the other. Look at Yehuda's life and you'll see he's always acting as a king who's fulfilling his duty. When Yosef is in the pit... He is the one who makes sure he doesn't stay in the pit. He gets it done. He gets him sold. When Tamar is about to be burnt, he will get up and say, I did it. When Binyamin has to be taken back to Egypt, he will guarantee to Yaakov that he's taking full responsibility. When Binyamin is taken into captivity by Yosef, he will stand up to Yosef and say, I will become the slave forever. But I need Binyamin to go free. He will act as a leader with responsibility, taking responsibility for what's needed at that moment. Yehuda represents the component of submission. I was once giving a lecture. I was talking about Shabbos. A Jew, it was a secular crowd. A Jew raises his hand by questions and answers. This is Robert Jacobson. Can you give me one reason that a normal American person who didn't grow up Orthodox should restrict himself 24 hours from turning on his phone, from turning on the light, from going shopping, from watching television, from taking a shower and doing whatever you want, going to the gym, in order to keep Shabbos. Could you explain to me why? Explain this to me. What do you think was the answer I should have given him at that moment? Let me tell you two answers. Tell me which one is what. I could tell him why. Who created you? God. Who's giving you life right now? God. What's the real source of all reality? God. Hashem said, keep Shabbos. Boom. That's it. Hashem said, keep Shabbos. Is that a true answer? It's a good answer. It's a true answer too. It's not what I told him. Why didn't I tell it to him? There's thousands of Chabad houses in the world. Unfortunately, lots of people who come to show don't walk three miles. They come other ways. Unfortunately. The rabbi gets up at the bima, gives a sermon, often speaks about Shabbos. What happens if he would say, Chabrosai? There's a master to the universe. Hashem is the master of the universe. He created you. You don't have a life out of it. He made a few requests. He brought you into his world. He said, keep Shabbos and there for everybody. Bring your keys to the bimba. Make a beautiful pile. You could come to my house till after Shabbos or walk home. Everything he said was right. I don't know if next week anybody would show up. Not because it was wrong. Instead, what I told this Jew is, your children 
deserve to have one night with a father who's not checking his text messages every few minutes. Do you know what it will do to your family if your wife and your children know that once a week they have the full attention of their father 24 hours a day, sitting there listening to each other, talking to each other, eating together, arguing with each other, schmoozing with each other, just connecting as a family. You may not appreciate it the first week. Do it for a few weeks. But do it not as a voluntary thing, because then you'll change. Do it as a commandment, as a commitment. And tell me if it will not change the caliber of your life. What was I talking to him about? Everybody about him. About him. So what is Judaism? Is it about you? Is it about Hashem? Great question. I felt he had to hear Yosef. Because I wanted him to be able to experience Shabbos. Here is where there was a major conflict. Yehuda understands that there's a philosophy called Yosef. That's not an issue. But you know what happens? What happens is Yisrael of as Yosef we call Bonach. Why does it say Yisrael not Yaakov? So the Rakachava writes in Sofnas Paneich Vayeshev, whenever it says Yaakov, it's the individual. Whenever it says Yisrael, it's referring to the story of the Jewish people. Yaakov as the father of the Jewish people forever. Yisrael of as Yosef we call Bonach. Yaakov Avinu cherishes Yosef more than all of his children, but also like Sinus Passim, which is a colorful, beautiful tunic, because that's Yosef. Yosef is the one who will show the beauty of Yiddishkeit, the beauty of God, the beauty of Torah. That's his destiny. Yehuda can understand that. The brothers can understand it. But here goes. Yosef is now dreaming that everybody is going to prostrate themselves to him. Whoa. He's the king. He's the leader. Two issues now emerge. One issue is, is this self-actualization bordering on a different type of self-actualization where you worship me? Even deeper, or step deeper, kingdom was promised to Yehuda, to the tribe of Yehuda. Why? Because as I said before, we understand that ultimately the greatest calling in life is when I can graduate myself and lose myself in God, not only find myself in God. It's not always reduced to my experience, but I could take my experience and then give that over to something that transcends me because that allows me to touch the infinite. On the other hand, Yosef says, I'm the king. I'm the ultimate king. You're bowing down to me. The Shalah puts it in Parshish Vayeshev. They saw Yosef as the ultimate Moirid in Malchus based David. The ultimate rebel against the kingdom of based David. Not only that, the Shvata wanted to bring Mashiach. Mashiach would be Yehuda. And Yosef is the one who is rebelling against that Malchus. It's not just a question of Yosef as an individual. It's a question if Judaism is really going to become about what? All about... Me. Even to the point that Yehuda is bowing down to Yosef. In other words, ultimately, the leader is Yosef, not Yehuda. Yosef, not Yehuda. This is where they sell Yosef as a slave. The opposite of being a king. Yosef has to become an Evid instead of a Melech. 
the dreams, the Ksoynes Pasim, are simply reflective of a major conflict in philosophy. But what was the truth? The truth is, Yosef was Tzadik. The only one who's called a Tzadik. Tzadik Elia. Why? Because Yosef was not undermining Yehuda. Yosef was preparing for Yehuda. Yosef is the first king in Jewish history. He's not the last king in Jewish history. For you to be able to reach Yehuda, you have to go through the Malchus of Yosef for a very simple reason. If I come to my child at a very young age and I say, my dear daughter, my dear son, the ultimate of life is for you to completely surrender everything to Hashem. What you care about, what you feel, what you think is irrelevant, insignificant. What do you think that would do to a child? Would that really be surrender? Or would that be ultimate crushing, destruction? He wouldn't even be able to surrender to Hashem. There's no he. There's no he. At best, you turn him into a robot. At worst, you turn him into a resentful person whose entire Judaism is coerced on him, not from him. He is not there. He was ignored. He was destroyed. He was crushed. You wanted his identity, her identity should be, should be included, should be embraced. Can you really experience Yehuda without Yosef? Yehuda in his ultimate. Of course Yosef also needs discipline. Of course the vision of Yehuda is there even with Yosef. But for a person to really be able to lose themselves in God, don't they first have to find themselves in God? For a person to be able to lose themselves in a marriage, don't you have to first find yourself in a marriage? What if I tell a chassan or a kala, marriage is not about you, it's about the other. Is that true? Of course it's true. But then you could marry anybody. You could marry a car. It's not about you. But what happens? Are you married? You're not married. Marriage was created for you. You're not, it happens. You're not in the relationship even. So yes, bittle, bittle, surrender, surrender. You're not in a relationship. So what happens? Either you become a robot, or there's a part of you that's never there. It's just completely resentful. Your externality is there. So Yosef is the king as a preparation for Yehuda. In order to be able to reach Yehuda, you have Yosef. And then, Yosef, who has an element of Yehuda, but knows that he's preparing for Yehuda and therefore he wants to actualize himself and he never worships the self because he understands that ultimately the self was created by Hashem. So Hashem didn't create a self that contradicts Hashem's will. On the contrary, your ultimate truest self will be reflective of God's will. But you have to dig, you have to find, sometimes you have to struggle. The self is also a creation of Hashem. My mind, my heart, my personality, my characteristics... God didn't only want a robot to serve him, he wanted a human being to serve him. So what happens really is that Yosef sees himself as a catalyst, as a springboard for Yehuda. That's how Yaakov also sees Yosef. And he invests so much in Yosef HaTzabek. But those two philosophies can be seen in stark opposition with two very different emphases. And when one is completely entrenched in his perspective, it's very hard to see the other perspective. That could then lead up to Yehuda, where Yehuda is the great act of submission, which is the ultimate truth where a person has the courage 
to be able to transcend himself and lose himself in a truth where the I doesn't exist, not because he's insecure, not because he was crushed, but because the I melts away in infinity, which is far beyond the I. Or as the Kotzke Rebbe said, I don't know how to translate that. A God that every putrid seed can comprehend, I will not worship. In other words, can I really reduce God to my experience? Let's say I will refine myself in the deepest way. Can I reduce all of God to my experience? The Ein Saif, I have to lose myself in the Ein Saif. Not find myself in the Ein Saif. If this is the case, now come back with me to the Gemara and Sanhedrin. And this will Be'ezer Hashem bring it together. Yosef is the king, not Yehuda. They all bow down to Yosef. They all bow down to Yosef. At this stage, Yosef is the king. When they go into Eretz Yisrael, Yehoshua is the leader from the tribe of Yosef. The Mishkan is still there. It'll go over to Shaul, which is an intermediary between Yosef and Yehuda, because this is Binyamin. What will Shaul's mistake be? Why did Shaul lose his royalty, remember? He was told to destroy Amalek, and what did he say? I want to know. What does the Gemara say by Yarav Bamachal? Compassion. I could bring their animals as karbonas. What does Shmuel Amavi tell him? Toiv, Shmoya, Mizevach, Toiv, Lahakshiv, Michael, and Elim. Better to listen than bring a beautiful carbon. Better to obey than to bring an offering of a ram. Shaul HaMelech was saying, carbon is from the word Kiru. I want to sublimate the animals of Amalek. I feel bad for Amalek. And Shmuel said, Hashem told you to kill Amalek. Shaul lost his royalty. Who got it? David from the tribe of Yehuda. David who says in Tehillim, like a suckling nursing from his mother, completely committed. Shaul looks at David and he doesn't understand David. You know why? When David Amelech defeats Goliath, when David Amelech defeats the Plishtim, what are people singing? The women are singing what? At least you know Tanakh. Somebody knows Tanakh. Shaul struck in the thousands. David struck in the myriads. Shaul gets angry. Shaul gets jealous. He wants to kill him. What's the depth here? Shaul looks at David and he sees in David a tremendous warrior, a tremendous fighter. Shaul thinks this is the ultimate danger. But really, David, for him, it's not a contradiction. Read David in Tehillim, read David in Tanakh. It's two Davids, but it's really the same person. Because David was completely committed. And when you're completely committed, your triumphs, your celebrations, your might, your warriors, part of your commitment. God wants you to employ all of your facets. David gets the kingdom. Now, Yehuda ultimately took over. Yosef paved the path. Yehuda took over. But at the end of Shlomo's life, he goes astray. What does this mean? They went over from Yosef to Yehuda, but they're not there yet. They're not there yet. They surrendered, but they're not there. They're not ready to surrender. So what has to happen? We've got to go back to Yosef. If he didn't work through the Yosef, 
You're not going to get to your Huda. You know why you're not going to get to your Huda? Because yourself is still resenting. Yourself is not there. There's still a tremendous obstacle in your identity. So from Shlomo, we have to go back to Yeravam, which is back to Yosef. Yeravam now has the opportunity to be a new Yosef. Here's the tragedy of Yeravam. Yehuda looked at Yosef, and you know who he saw? He saw Yeravam. Yeravam was Yosef going sour. Yeravam's goyness was unprecedented. His title is brilliant. But what happened? The world of self-expression took over his life. How do I know this? So the famous Gemara, Sanhedrin Daf Kufala from the fourth source from the bottom, Amar Ibn Nachman, Gasus Haruach Shahayabai Bi Yeravam Tardasim One thing wiped away Yeravam from the world. What? He was so great. He was great. His Gasus Haruach, his arrogance. This is where self-expression becomes a form of self-worship. Come now back to the story of the Mishkan versus the Beis Hamikdash. Chai is self-expression. An animal feels, walks, vegetation grows. Yosef, doimen, you step on. What's higher, Chai, tzemeach or doimen? Of course, doimen we step on. Tzemeach, you could step on, but the tree is not happy. Chai, try stepping on your bull. Will be a shoshanagach. Don't step on your bull. <laughs> or on the buffalo. Or certainly on the lioness. Don't step on me. A chai has personality, has a lot of strength. The carnating kind of. The Mishkan, what's the top? Chai. Then Tzimeach, then Daimon. The hierarchy is life, vitality, Yosef. Under that is Tzimeach. Under that is Doimim. The Beis Hamikdash is already the vision of David, the vision of Yehuda. There, it's all rock, it's all Doimim. It's the ultimate truth that commitment, what we call bittel, submission, surrender, is the peak of Judaism, not because we believe in repression, not because we believe in crushing the personality. On the contrary, we celebrate the Chai, we celebrate the Tzimeach. But it's there ultimately to lead you to be able to go beyond yourself and become part of the insight which is always beyond you. Not because you're bad. On the contrary. So that the you should be able to experience the insight and even that which is beyond the you. So that's the Beis The Mishkan Shiloi is an intermediary as I explained. It's all there in the story with Yerav and Benavot. Now come back to the Gemara. Hashem turns to the Gethir of him and he says, Chazar Bach. And you know what's going to happen? Ani, Va'ata, Uben Yishai, Natal, the Ganeidin. Me, you, and Ben Yishai, go on Ganeidin. Who's first? Yeravim is first. You're first. Of course you're first. Yosef came before Yehuda. David and Shlomo were kings, but now it's going back to you. You're going to be first. Ani, Va'ata, Uben Yishai. Yeravim says, Mi Beroish. Who's really first? I know that I'm now first. Who's really first? Hashem says, Ben Yishai Barash. Ah. Yeravim says, I know that Yosef is the king before Yehuda, but I want to know who's really, really the king. What's the ultimate truth? Is the ultimate truth, is the ultimate truth that I am the first 
that life is really about self-expression, self-actualization, in the most spiritual sense, but it's ultimately about me, or is the ultimate truth of life, ain't oid movada. There's nothing but the reality of Hashem, achtus Hashem, the unity of Hashem pervades everything. And my eye is also part of that insight. And I'm here to become part of that truth. What's really the Rosh? Am I just preparing for Ben Yishai, or am I the ultimate? So Hashem says, Ben Yishai You're preparing for the Jews to be able to go back to Davar I'm just preparing. Here is the litmus test. Ultimately, are you part of something greater than yourself? Or does the buck stop with your ego, which is great, which is awesome, which is powerful? Here is the Nekudas HaEmes, where Yosef and Yehuda are completely different, and Yerava misinterprets it, and he becomes Yerava. And that split continues in Klal Yisrael until the moment of Yechesko. What does Yechesko say? So how are they one? How can they become one if Avdi David Malach... So they're not one. Yosef is surrendered. No. The conflict is only from our perception. But now let's discuss it from Hashem's perception. Is there really a conflict? Is it not really the same thing? Really, and this is of course, looking at it from the other side of the curtain, it's really the same thing, because let's ask a simple question. What is the self? Self-expression. Self-expression. What is the self? Self is also part of Hashem. So the ultimate self, the truest self, is Elokus. That's the emiss of the self. It's the truth of reality. So what is the self? Surrender to God, that is the ultimate self. And the other way, let's go the other way. What does it really mean to surrender to God? To surrender to God only means your externality, your external self surrenders to God. It means the totality of your being. The totality of your being means it must include your mind, your heart, your passions, your instincts, your habits, your yearnings, your aspirations, your dreams. That's all part of the personality that God molded. It's all... So in the Nekudah HaPnimis, in the ultimate sense, Yosef is Yehuda, Yehuda is Yosef. But in the experience of life, there are two roads. Two roads diverged in the forest of history. So one man said, I took the one less traveled by and that made all the difference. But two roads diverged in the forest of history. And the two roads conflict with each other very often. There is the tension every day between these two. And they're represented in these two giants of Yosef and Yehuda, who both have a tremendous place in Avodah Hashem and in the story of Judaism. And ultimately each one is indispensable to our life and our journey. And yet, in the ultimate unity, not because Yosef is ignored or denigrated, because the tree of Yosef unites with the tree of Yehuda. And then, so now, let's look in the Kuti Hashash La'arizal Sanhedrin, the second to the last paragraph. In the future there will be two Mashiachs. Mashiach ben Yosef Mitchura, or Mashiach ben David Minukva. There will be Mashiach ben Yosef who comes from Yosef, that's masculine. There will be Mashiach ben David who comes from David, is feminine. Basically, not without getting into the details, Kabbalistically, Yehuda is femininity, 
Yosef is masculinity, Yehuda is Malchus, and Yosef is what's called Zah. And therefore, the Yeravim felt, he goes first, masculinity must prevail over femininity. What's the difference of masculinity and femininity? Masculinity is very into self-actualization in history. Femininity represents the ultimate commitment, the commitment of a mother, the commitment of a woman to life, to birth, to children is infinite. It's still infinite. We all know that if Adam would have been given the responsibility of having children, he would have been the first and last human being. Men are macho until they get a virus. They get a flu and then they go into bed for two and a half weeks. Right? They don't realize that the wife basically goes that through every night. She's sleep deprived. So the feminine, femininity represents absolute commitment. Yeravim says, I come first. Dukhra comes before Nukva. Lukach Omar. Ihochi loy If Benisha goes first, I don't want it. Vakadish Baruchu Omar David Birosh. The woman of valor is the crown of her husband. Femininity ultimately transcends masculinity with all due respect to the Ezra's Anoshim. With Chachma he founds earth. Earth is femininity. And with Tvuna, which is Bina, which is lower than Chachma, he creates heaven. Heaven is masculinity. So Bina is connected to heaven, but Chachma, which is even higher, is connected to Eretz. From the Rebbe, from the Ariza, Rebbe Chaim Vital is quoted. Yeravam feels that he's ultimately the greatest. Hashem says, Yeravam, you're awesome. But Ben Yishai Beroish, ultimately, Yosef prepares the road for Yehuda, the Avdi David Malach Aleim And that's why the Haftarah of Ayigash, Ayigash of Yehuda, where Yosef and Yehuda meet in Egypt, and they ultimately create peace, at least for that moment in history. The Haftarah is this portion of Yecheskel that speaks about the two coming together. Mashiach ben Yosef now surrenders to Mashiach ben David. He may even be killed because of Mashiach ben David. He becomes part of Mashiach ben David because ultimately the moment of redemption is when every human being realizes that... If you really want to find yourself in God, you have to be able to lose yourself in God. And to really lose yourself in God, you have to be able to find yourself in God and ultimately realize that as much as we find ourselves, the greatest moment of self-expression is when I connect to that which is beyond me and when I realize that as much as my consciousness can contain truth, the greatest moment of truth is when I could completely surrender and become part of the infinite. Now what you're saying is something very interesting. That from your experience, most of our educational institutions crush the individual. Right, I understand. This was your experience. So what you're saying is that the educational model that exists at least in many institutions from what you see is that the messages we give our youth is your feelings don't matter. Your personality is irrelevant. Your individuality 
Disregard it. It's all about allegiance, duty, commitment, dedication. There's a truth beyond you. Commit yourself to it. Conform to this pattern which we say is true. Or we say that God says is true. Who you are as an individual, your passions, your dreams, your aspirations, it's irrelevant. That's what you feel our educational experience is. So you're touching upon this major tension between these two forces. Great. Let's now learn a piece in Torah. This is, from the, as I mentioned, from the Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Liadi. In his Sefer Torah on Parshish Vayigash, which is a maimed, is a maimer, a discourse about Yosef and Yehuda. Let's see it inside. I'm just, it's a long discourse. I chose a paragraph, a few lines from the maimer. It's written in abstract terminology, but let's try to apply it based on some of what we discussed. Torah Ur Parshish Vayigash, you see in your sources. This is also the difference between Yosef and Yehuda. It's the difference between heaven versus earth and Soymeach, vegetation, produce versus Doimim. Doimim is inanimate, the silent, that's what seems lifeless. Rocks are Doimim. Water is doimim. Minerals are doimim. The earth is doimim. Vegetation, produce, it grows. There's life. There's tzemeach. And the Maimah earlier discusses the difference between heaven and earth, tzemeach and doimim. Yosef comes from the word increase, enhance. Because the motto of Yosef is to grow and become larger and more exalted and greater. This is the concept of tzemeach, growth and more growth. Especially the cedar tree. The cedar tree, which continues to grow taller and taller until it reaches great heights. The tzaddik and Yosef is the one who's called Yosef HaTzaddik. He blossoms like the palm tree, like a cedar in Lebanon, he grows. Yehuda Upchines Eretz. Yehuda represents earth. Malchus Da'atzilis, Sheipchines HaDoimim Da'atzilis. We're not going to get into the meaning of these words, but it represents what's called in Kabbalah the quality of Malchus. Doimim. Selflessness. Dedication, self-transcendence, going beyond the self. Yehuda represents submission, surrender, to be moida, ubitl, self-abnegation. The doimim, that which is inanimate, has a tremendous sense of selflessness. We all walk and step on the earth, and the earth does not protest it. In other words, it experiences itself as an opportunity to hold up humanity, to hold up life on the planet. That's how it experiences itself. In the order of existence today, Yosef precedes Yehuda. Yosef is higher than Yehuda. Who is the king in Egypt? In the first phase of Jewish history, Yosef is the leader. 
Yosef represents growth. Yosef represents exaltedness. Yosef represents absolute self-actualization spiritually. He is the king. He is the one who feeds everybody else. He nurtures everybody else. All of the brothers and their families need to receive from Yosef. They need to learn from Yosef. They need to tear off a page from his book. He is the one who sustains Klal Yisrael, not only physically, spiritually, Jewishly, religiously, emotionally. He is the Melech. He is the Prime Minister from whom, whom we follow. That represents, it reflects the motto in the Mishkan. The Tzimeach is higher than the Doimim. The Tzimeach, that which grows, represent the walls of the Mishkan. The earth is on the bottom of the Mishkan. Yosef, the Tzimeach, is higher than Yehuda. He is above the earth. In the future, Yosef. Suddenly there will be a change. Yehuda will transcend Yosef. The woman of valor becomes the crown beyond her husband. We say in the the end, the lowest part, the earth, really originates in the highest space. The end is in the beginning. Soif ma'isev machshava. Yehuda really in machshava transcends Yosef. Ula asid lovetis alabchines yira tata biyira ilam ekaira. The lower level of fear will be sublimated into the higher level of fear. Al kain tia az ateres baila. Therefore, the woman will be the crown of her husband. Ki habitul ula maila b'madrege me'ave ve'yira demidus. Because essentially what will be revealed is that the bittel of Yehuda transcends the love, the passion and the awe of the midas, of the emotions represented by Yosef, the motto of the Mishkan, Tzimeach, growth versus Yehuda. What is the Baal Hatanya teaching us here? What is the Alter Rebbe teaching us here? There is the concept of doimim and the concept of Tzimeach. Submission and passion. Self-expression, self-transcendence. There is obedience, represented what he calls here as yira, or reverence. I'm committed to you, to a goal, to an aim, to an objective beyond me. And then there is me finding myself, expressing myself. One is represented by Yosef, one is represented by Yehud. Naturally, Doimim is lower than Semeach. Yiratata, the lower level of fear, is below Ahava, below love. I'm doing it, I'm committed to it, but it doesn't permeate me. It doesn't penetrate me. So I am committed to something, but I am committed to it as something that transcends me. So that is basically the lowest level. This is the earth, which is lower than Tzimeach. What does this mean in a person's life? Everybody understands that a human being needs to be harnessed. If I just tell my child, do whatever you want, just express yourself uninhibitedly, or I tell myself, whatever you're feeling, do. What? 
If I have a terrible habit? What if I have a horrible addiction? What if my instincts are gravitating towards destruction? A person needs to be able to have a blueprint of what's right, what's wrong. A moral compass, a moral guide of what's right, what's wrong. I may be in the mood of it, I may not be in the mood of it. It's called doing the right thing. I'm going to eat whatever I want, whenever I want. What if it's poisonous? What if it's self-destructive? I'll say whatever I want. I'll do whatever I'm in the mood of. A person has to be able to surrender and say, despite my mood, this is the proper thing to do. This is what we call yiratata, or what we call kabbalas el malchushamayim, or what we call hagdamas nasalanishma. What is the blueprint in Judaism? This is Torah. It's the manual that God gave humanity and the Jewish people to distinguish between what's good and what's not good. What's moral, what's immoral. What is positive, what is negative. What is good, what is evil. I know it's the right thing. Do I feel it? I may not feel it. This is Yehuda on a basic level. And it's really the lowest and basic level of Avedis Hashem. It's called Doimen. I may not be passionate. I may not be excited. I may not be enthusiastic. I may be in a place of Doimen, which means silence. There's no life. Because I don't feel it. I'm not in the mood of it. I'm not passionate about it. I don't see the self-expression. But it's what's called Yiratata. The lower level of fear or awe where you know this is the right thing. Not a bad thing, it's the right thing, even though you're not in the mood of it. The doctor may give you a prescription. The prescription may be bitter. You may not like it. You may not understand how it works. You may not be in the mood of taking it. You'll take it anyway. Why? Because you know that this is going to make you healthy. This will help you get rid of the infection. Does it mean you're excited about it? No. Does it mean you understand exactly how it works? No, you never went to medical school. You don't know the first thing about medicines. You don't know anything about infections. But you'll do it not because you're crazy, not because you're blind, not because you're in a cult, but because you appreciate. You know who the doctor is, you know that he has experience, you know that he has helped many patients, and you understand that his blueprint for what you should do is likely the path that will make you healthy. That's one level. Then you reach a higher level. The higher level is the level of Yosef. Yefei toyev yefei mara. Where you develop the midos, the ava, the yireh. In the sense, here here on a higher level. Love, the geshmak, the delightfulness. This is a much more developed level. It seems like the ultimate purpose. Where you understand that the blueprint of God is not here to undermine your individuality and your creativity. On the contrary, somebody asked me the other day, he said it's very simple. What God wants and what I want are not the same thing. What Torah wants for my life and what I want for my life are not the same thing. Good question. What's the answer to that question? What's the real answer to that question? Yosef comes and tells us something very powerful. Yosef says, you missed the point. Who created your individuality? Your individual personality is ultimately a reflection of God's will as well. There's no such a thing saying that your true self and God's self are at odds with each other. Yourself is designed by Hashem. And therefore it's impossible that your true self contradicts the will of God. On the contrary, if you excavate your true self, if you discover the depth of your personality, the depth of your mind, the depth of your heart, its greatest self-realization is by becoming a conduit for the divine will. Because the ultimate self 
is really connected to Hashem. The ultimate self is a creation of Hashem. The self is a mirror of Hashem. Our individuality was designed as as you said. The Mishnah says at the end of Pirkei So what this means is that the depth of my heart, the depth of my dreams, my deepest aspirations and yearnings, if I can really have the courage to go deeper into them, are not at odds with Torah. They're not at odds with mitzvahs. On the contrary, Torah and mitzvahs is the blueprint that facilitates, that invites, that allows for the ultimate truth of my inner self to emerge. Yes, at this stage in my life, I may feel that there's a contradiction. I may feel, perhaps emotionally, resentment, especially if I was crushed in my yeshiva then I, have to, I feel like I have to run away from it. Or maybe philosophically, I just don't see it work. But the Yisoyed of Yiddishkeit is, yourself is also a creation of God. Your inner identity is also a product of God. Your inner self is also sacred and spiritual and holy and part of Hashem's unity and Hashem's reality. And therefore, ultimately, your deepest dreams and God's deepest dreams meet. So Yosef here seems like the ultimate. The doimim is on the bottom. That's the first level, yiratata, the lower level of fear. And then you go higher, which is tzemeach, which is Yosef. Growth, self-actualization. Yosef's self-actualization is not egotistical. It can be seen that way. This is where the brothers erred. They thought Yosef's self-actualization is egotistical. But essentially Yosef's self-actualization is part of avoidus Hashem. For him, that's Havodah Hashem. Yosef is a tzaddik. But wait, there's something else. As the Balatanya says, Yire Tata is rooted in Yire Ilah. And the Asid Lave we will see in Yire Tata Yire Ilah. Which means this. Ultimately, finding yourself in God is awesome. But is that it? Truth transcends my experience of truth. And if I limit truth to my experience of it, I'm barely scratching the surface of truth. There's no such a thing, I will grasp the full majesty of the infinite while I remain I. If I remain I, ultimately the infinity is restricted to my experience of infinity. And therefore the ultimate truth lay in Yehuda. Not to find yourself in truth, but to lose yourself in truth. Not to lose yourself in truth because you believe in crushing yourself, repressing yourself, denying yourself, hating yourself. On the contrary, it's appreciating the grandness that transcends the self. And therefore the self melts away in dveikus with the ainsoif. I once asked a great pianist, what's the greatest moment at a concert? How do you know you're successful? And he said to me, when I don't feel that I am playing the music, my fingers just become a conduit for a higher energy. That's not self-repression. That's bittal in a much higher sense. That's yiri law. That's the higher awe. It's not lower fear because I'm not in the mood, but this is what I have to do. It's far beyond that. I go beyond my experience to touch the truth. I melt away happily. But on the other hand, 
Can one begin with that? Can one begin with that level of Yiri love, your ultimate Yehuda, before Yosef? No. Because if I come to somebody and I say, it's all about surrender. Surrender the self. Abnegate the self. It's not about you. It's completely not about you. Truth is completely beyond you. Then you will never become part of that. And what happens is, you may be forever frustrated because the you has been crushed. You may become a robot. At best, your internal self is not part of the relationship. Your internal self was left behind and it will probably haunt you because you have surrendered. But which part of you have, has surrendered? You, you never surrendered. You didn't engage your identity. And therefore, we start with Yiri law. We only discipline. But then Yosef becomes the leader. That Tzimeach is higher than the daimim. Self-expression. Appreciating the fact that Torah and mitzvahs, that Yiddishkeit is here to bring out your best. To have you dance and celebrate. To help you suck the marrow out of life. To actualize your life in the most perfected and exalted way. To maximize all of your talents and all of your resources. To bring goodness into your life, happiness into your life, meaning into your life. But that's a preparation for something even deeper. Yehuda. Where ultimately the daimim transcends even the tzemeach. Yehuda transcends even Yosef. The complete alignment with the source. Now that you had Yosef before Yehuda, you can bring your entire self into this relationship and surrender your entire self into a truth that's completely beyond yourself, where you can lose yourself. You can lose yourself in truth. But here's the deal. Throughout history, there can be a major tension between these two forces. We see it right here. In truth, they're one. This is what we keep on saying. You know why? Because ultimate self-realization happens in self-transcendence. When you lose yourself in truth, you will find yourself. If you never really lose yourself, ultimately you could never really find yourself. Your ultimate self you will discover through losing yourself, through surrender, through transcendence, your true self, your deepest self. On the other hand, God wants the entire person. So Yosef is really one with Yehuda, and Yehuda is really one with Yosef. Because for Yosef to be Yosef, Yosef needs Yehuda. For Yosef to be Yosef, Yosef needs to lose himself in truth. That's when you really discover who you are. You really discover your deepest spiritual, truest self. When you could surrender. On the other hand, 
Ultimate surrender requires self-actualization because God wants you not only to surrender the self, He wants you to relate with yourself to Him. He wants your heart and He wants your mind and He wants your dreams and He wants your passion. Your eye itself is part of divinity. Your eye and Hashem's eye are ultimately one. The Tzamech Tzedek says, Ayin Oisius Ani. Ayin means nothing. Ani means I. Ultimately, Ani and Ayin are one and the same. I find my Ani through becoming Ayin. And I can only achieve real Ayin if I engage my Ani. Again, I find my real Ani through becoming Ayin. That's where I find my Ani. By becoming Ayin, I find my Ani on different levels. There's finding my ani in a basic ayin, yiratata, basic discipline. There's finding my ani, my deeper ani, in ayin, because through that discipline I really discover who I really am. And I experience the real ayin only by going back to ani. Because the real ayin wants all of me to be part of the relationship. And we discover that my eye and Hashem's eye are really one. Or as the Mittele Rebbe, the son of the Balatanya, has an expression in his Sefer Biuri Hazoya Parshas Beshalach. The Yesh Hanivra and the Yesh Hamiti are really one and the same. The eye of the created being and the ultimate true eye of the Rebbeinu Shalaylam are really at their core, core, core level, they're one. But history is a long, painful journey of going through the process that it takes in order to discover this. And to discover this not in a robotic way, but to discover this in an experiential, profound, and authentic way. Have a wonderful day. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.